Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'd like to thank Indeed for sponsoring my podcast. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, interview, all on Indeed. You can get started right now with a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is good through June 30th. Terms and conditions do apply. Well, the markets continue to ignore mounting evidence of a huge inflationary problem because everybody is convinced that these price increases are transitory, right? It's all temporary. It's all the result of comparisons and other anomalies that were associated with the coronavirus and the shutdown. And so we can close our eyes to what's plainly there because we can all rest assured that this is just transitory. And again, the principal leader in this it's transitory campaign is the Federal Reserve, is Jerome Powell. And after all, if the Fed thinks it's transitory, well, who are we to argue? But again, it was the Federal Reserve that said the problems in subprime were contained and now they want us to believe that the problems with inflation are transitory. Well, they're as transitory now as subprime was contained. The problem is the markets are being fooled again, just like they were being fooled in the past. And the new evidence that everybody is ignoring that was out earlier today was the big jump in import and export prices. And this follows the big rise in consumer prices that we got yesterday. In fact, let me start with the March CPI. This came out yesterday. So the consensus forecast was for a half a percent rise, which is a big rise. But again, nobody cared because it's transitory. Well, we got a rise that was even bigger than that. It was up 0.6%. The year-over-year gain 
which was expected to be up two and a half, was up 2.6. X food and energy, what they like to call the core, that was supposed to be up 0.2. Instead, it was up 0.3. And year over year core, uh, which was supposed to be up 1.6, well, that actually came in at up 1.6. So the numbers were a bit hotter than anticipated. But again, the market just shrugged it off based on the belief that none of this matters when it's all transitory. But as I've been stating, how does everybody know it's transitory? How are they sure that it is not just the beginning of a protracted period of rising prices? They don't. We're not going to know whether or not these gains are transitory until we're looking back at them through the rearview mirror. That's exactly what the Federal Reserve plans on doing. They want to wait to see for sure whether or not it's transitory. And then if they determine it's not, well, then they plan on doing something about the problem. But of course, by then, the problem is so out of control that the Fed doesn't have a prayer of doing anything about it. In fact, I think they can't do anything about it right now, which is why they're not even trying, which is why they're pretending that it doesn't exist. But if you get back and look at the CPI numbers so far for the first quarter, we were up 0.6% in March. We were up 0.4% in February, we were up 0.3% in January. That seems like a bit of a trend. Each month is higher than the month before. Now, if you just add up the CPI gains of Q1, that's a 1.013% increase in the first quarter. Well, if we do that every quarter, that's better than a 4% gain in the CPI. That is well ahead of the 2% target and would certainly, in my mind, constitute much more than just a little bit above 2%. Because when the Fed is talking about slightly above 2%, they're talking about 2.2, 2.3. They're not talking about 4. But if you simply multiply the first quarter by 4, that's what you get. But why would you do that? Why would you ignore the underlying trend during the first three months of the quarter, which is for each month to be higher than the preceding month? If you extrapolate those monthly gains through the entirety of the year, assuming the trend that's in place stays in place. It doesn't accelerate. It just continues on the current trajectory. I think you're talking about a gain in the CPI for 2021 of 13%. Now, I don't know that we're going to stay on quite the same trajectory, but I expect the CPI to finish the year 2021 with higher than a 5% gain. Now, of course, when we're talking about a CPI that reveals a 5% increase in consumer prices, we know that the actual prices that consumers are paying was up a lot more than 5%. Because for the CPI to reveal 5%, you know that the actual rate is probably north of 10%. And in fact, we got more numbers today that came out on import and export prices. Listen to these numbers. This is March. Import prices, the price that we paid for the goods that we imported, were up 1.2% for the month of March. Now, the price of the stuff that we exported, that jumped by 2.1%. Now, first of all, you might think, well, that's good news, right? Because we're earning the money on our exports, right? We're charging our foreign customers, and so we want to get more money for our exports, which is true, but if it cost us 2.1% more to produce the stuff that we're exporting, 
it stands to reason that we also had a pretty big jump in the cost of producing this stuff that we're not exporting, the stuff that we're going to keep here. Everything we make is more expensive to make, and it's going to get passed on to consumers, whether they're international or whether they're domestic. And of course, even though export prices are rising faster than import costs, our trade deficit is still exploding. That's because of the volume, right? We import a lot more than we export. So even though the export prices are going up more, since we're importing so much more stuff, we're paying a lot more for what we're importing. And so our trade deficits are exploding. And by the way, look at the year-over-year numbers. Import prices up 6.9% year-over-year. Export prices up 9.1% year-over-year. And I don't even think this includes the cost of transportation. This is just the price of the goods, not the cost of getting them here. The cost of bringing merchandise to the U.S. is skyrocketing, not only because of all this demand, but because all those containers have to go back to Asia empty. That means the cost of shipping stuff to America has to include the round-trip cost of bringing that empty container back. It's not like that cost is offset by the cost of shipping goods over there because we're not shipping goods over there because we're not making them. What we're doing is we're printing money. In fact, look at what happened today with the price of oil. Oil prices surged almost $3 a barrel. I mean, we were up about three and a quarter, three thirty on the highs. I'm looking at the price now. I think we closed only up about two seventy, so back below $63 a barrel, but still a pretty big gain on the day at $2.70 at just under $62.90 per barrel for crude. That is a big jump. And what sparked the big rally today was the bigger-than-expected drawdown in the domestic supplies of oil. Now, why are the supplies being drawn down? Well, because we're using them, right? There's more oil being refined, so there's more demand for the refineries. But also, the problem is we're not producing. I've been talking about that. I've been highlighting the fact that the rig count has not been going up. I talked about this at length on earlier podcasts that we were going to have a big problem, that we weren't going to have a big increase in supply from the bankrupt frackers on a rebound in oil prices. And that's exactly what's happening. The problem is we're printing a lot more money, but we're not pumping a lot more oil. So where are we going to get the oil? Well, we're going to import it. And as I mentioned on the last podcast, in our last trade numbers, America has now flipped back from a net exporter of oil to a net importer of oil. And the price of this imported oil is going much, much higher, which means the trade deficit is going much, much higher. But it also means all the cost of shipping stuff and all the cost of making stuff that requires energy, all that is going higher. The only thing that's preventing prices from rising even faster is the fact that the dollar still hasn't broke down because people are still of the belief that the U.S. economy is strong and that the Fed's going to raise rates. They don't understand the U.S. economy is weak, which is why rates are at zero and why they won't raise rates. Again, you still have people thinking that we have this stronger than expected uh, recovery. And as a result of that, the Fed is going to raise rates sooner than it's anticipating. We don't have a strong recovery. We have a bubble. What is causing the bubble? Inflation. The Fed is printing money and we're taking that money and we're buying stuff. That is not a strong economy. A strong economy produces surpluses. 
you produce more stuff that you can export. We wouldn't have skyrocketing budget deficits if we had a strong economy. A strong economy floods the treasury with cash. Companies are paying more taxes. Workers are paying more taxes. And the government doesn't have to spend money on unemployment benefits or welfare benefits or food stamps. The fact that government spending is soaring and tax revenues are not is an indication of a weak economy. So the Fed can't raise interest rates without pricking the bubble. The economy isn't really strong. Inflation is creating the illusion of strength. And raising interest rates would prick that bubble and pierce the illusion. So the Fed can't raise rates the way the market expects because they've confused inflation for a legitimate recovery. If the Fed tries to fight inflation by raising rates, the whole recovery vanishes and we're back in recession or depression and the markets, the financial markets come toppling down. But that is also why gold continues to ignore these much hotter than expected inflation numbers because everybody thinks that inflation is contained and they do expect the Fed to eventually launch a winning war with inflation with rate hikes and all that is pressuring gold. But again, the markets are wrong twice. There is going to be no war because the Fed can't wage it. But even if it tried, it would lose. In fact, proof that the markets are still not worried about inflation is the yield. Look at the yield on the 30-year U.S. Treasury. It did back up a bit today, but we're looking at 2 spot 325. That's how much you get for loaning money to the U.S. government for 30 years. That means bond investors expect inflation to average less than 2% over the next 30 years because after all, they have to get some positive rate of return on their money. Now, yes, granted, there is a lot of manipulation here because the Fed has rigged the market because you have the Fed printing money and buying bonds, but still, some people are buying bonds. The Fed is not 100% of the buying. There are private investors Uh, that are buying these bonds and willing to accept these low yields. And the only reason they're willing to accept these low yields is because they're looking past the spike up in inflation now and assume that it's temporary, it's transitory, and that the Fed is going to contain it. When the markets start to realize that this is not transitory, we are transitioning to high inflation, and that inflation is not only going to be much worse than they think, but the Fed is going to do nothing to prevent it from getting even worse than that, then the bond market's going to implode. And of course, when the bond market implodes, what is the Fed going to do? Print even more money to stop it from collapsing, which means they're going to throw gasoline on an inflationary fire that's already burning out of control. And that is when the price of gold and silver are going to really go up. It's got nothing to do with investors buying Bitcoin. It's not that investors are dumb enough to buy Bitcoin. It's that they're dumb enough to believe the Fed and to believe that inflation is transitory or that even if it wasn't, that the Fed is actually in a position to do something to contain it, which it's not. And while I am on the topic of Bitcoin, I want to discuss the much anticipated and highly hyped IPO of Coinbase. Coinbase began trading today Uh, As an IPO, it was a direct listing as opposed to a traditional IPO. And the reference price for COIN, which is a symbol, C-O-I-N, was $250 a share. Now, the reference price is not like an IPO price because nobody actually got to buy COIN at $250. That was just a reference point. 
And so the price settled the day at 328. So it looks like it was up by 34% and that somehow people who bought coin have a 34% gain on the first day of trading. They don't. When coin opened for trading, the first price that anybody had an opportunity to pay was $381. So in other words, if you bought coin as soon as you had the opportunity and you still own it on the close, you're down about 12%. So it is not the success that people want to tout. In fact, if you look at where coin was trading at its high this morning, probably within the first 10 minutes of its trading, it actually fell about 28% from its high price. The high price was $429.54, and then it sold down to $310 before closing at about $328. So not quite on the low, but pretty close. Meanwhile, if you were watching CNBC, as I was, they spent the entire morning and most of the afternoon, because I don't think this thing started trading till maybe uh, 1231 o'clock time frame. I forget exactly uh, when they finally opened it, but they really hyped this thing up. And they had one guest after another, bullish, bullish, bullish. All the anchors on CNBC were just singing the praises of Coinbase, of everybody involved in it, of Bitcoin on crypto. It was one big love fest. There wasn't a single negative word or skeptical word spoken the entire day. And then I was watching as they started talking about it. As soon as it starts trading and they see the prices going up, they're like mesmerized. They're they're in awe, right? They think, oh my God, this is fantastic. The price is going to keep going up. Oh, look at it. People keep buying it. It's never going to stop rising. It's just going to go 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 you better get in you better buy now they were so you know enthusiastic about this rise right it could it could never stop you know happy days were here forever crypto is great it's a whole new world right i mean cnbc is hook line and sinker in crypto right i mean they are the biggest crypto uh um, cheerleaders i think on the planet pretty much and then of course the whole thing reversed and collapsed but the first thing that sold off was not uh, Coinbase. What actually started happening was all of the crypto-related stocks and Bitcoin itself, they started to fall. And this was a buy the rumor, sell the fact, because Bitcoin itself earlier this morning had made a new all-time high. It traded above 64,000. In fact, it came very close to 65,000. I think we almost hit 64,900. So all of this was based on the hype surrounding the Coinbase IPO. See, Coinbase going public was supposed to lift all crypto boats, and it did until today when those boats sank. In fact, a lot of people were talking about today as a watershed moment in the life of crypto, and maybe it was, except crypto was drowning in that water. <laughs> and that's what happened today. And in fact, what I think happened is when Coinbase started trading, it basically sucked a lot of the oxygen out of the small room of crypto speculators. Because if you wanted to jump on board Coinbase, well, if you're already fully invested in crypto and now you want to put some money into Coinbase, well, maybe you actually have to sell some of your other crypto-related assets in order to free up the money to invest in Coinbase. And that's what happened. Look at some of these other stocks. 
Galaxy Digital, which I've been talking about, which was hitting new highs. Galaxy Digital led the decline down 17% on the day, followed up by MicroStrategy. That stock dropped 13%. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust down six and a quarter percent. The Ether Trust down almost as much, 6%. Look at Square. Square was down 5.5%. Anything related to crypto, even tangentially, PayPal was down 3%. Twitter, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's related just because of Jack Dorsey and his relation to PayPal, but it was down 3 and 3 quarters percent. So everything crypto went down today by the rumor, sell the fact. But again, there's just only so much speculative money to go around. And now you've got another uh, speculative bet that is competing for the same uh, crypto dollar. I don't think you have this huge, big institutional rush into Bitcoin and crypto the way CNBC is pretending. There are certain institutions and individuals who want to speculate in this sector, but it's a very uh, small group and they only have so much money and there's only so much you know they can buy. And so now you have another asset. And of course, if Coinbase keeps on falling, then that's a bad indicator because if the watershed moment turned out to be a big flop, if all these assets are drowning in that water, if this wasn't the beginning of a new leg up, a new bull market, then maybe more people will look at it as a top in the existing bull market and they're going to be rushing for the exits, which is something that could easily, easily happen. In business, the key to success is finding your edge and then leveraging it. Well, if you're hiring, that edge is Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. First you post, then you screen, and then you do the interview. All on Indeed. And now you can get a quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, and only pay for the candidates that actually meet your must-have qualifications and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. With tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fits your job description immediately, and they've passed the Indeed skills test that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 different skills tests or you can add your own. Then add your must-have requirements so you only pay for the applicants that meet them. According to TalentNet, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other leading job sites combined. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's right. You get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Meanwhile, earlier in the day before this IPO launched, I was watching an interview with Jerome Powell, and he was being interviewed by somebody from the Washington, D.C. Economic Club and really didn't say anything new, just the same old stuff that he said on 60 Minutes and that he's been saying about transitory inflation and about how everything is great. But the conversation did turn to crypto and Bitcoin. And Powell was asked about Bitcoin and what he thought about it or its potential as a currency or a rival for the U.S. dollar. And the one thing that Powell said that I agree with is he said that 
Bitcoin is not a currency. He said it's not being used as a currency. It's being used for speculation, which is exactly right. But where he then got it wrong is he said that Bitcoin is like gold. And he said for thousands of years, people have just ascribed some kind of value or properties to gold that it didn't really have, you know, and and so people just wanted it and they just bought it, you know, for some whatever mystical reasons, they just believed that gold had some value. And so they wanted to hold it. And he said, that's what's going on with Bitcoin, that Bitcoin just has this value that people just think it has for the same reasons that people think gold has value. And so he said, in that respect, Bitcoin is like gold, but it's nothing like the dollar or the euro or the yen because it's not a currency. And of course, that's where he's really got it wrong because Powell has no understanding of gold, right? Because gold's value is not just what people perceive because they just believe in it. It is a metal with unique properties that other metals do not have. I mean, all metals have some value because they're used for something, but gold is used for more things than other metals, and it could do things that other metals cannot that makes it extremely valuable. And it's also a beautiful metal, and it's a metal that has been a luxury good uh, for thousands of years. So when people have a lot of money and they can spend those money on luxuries, they end up spending a lot on gold. They end up buying a lot of things that are made out of gold. And that is not mystical and irrational. That is based on the actual properties that gold objectively possesses. Bitcoin doesn't possess any of that. Bitcoin has value only because people believe it has value, despite the fact that it intrinsically has none. Gold has tons of intrinsic value. Some people might value it more than others, but the the fact that it objectively has value is indisputable. Bitcoin, on the other hand, only has value to the extent that people believe in it. And if people stop believing in it, then it has no value. It doesn't matter if people believe in gold. Gold is there regardless of whether or not you believe in it. Gold can perform its functions whether or not people want to believe in it. But if people stop believing in Bitcoin, then it's nothing. You know, one of the funnier questions, though, that I thought Powell was asked during this interview uh, was uh, the guy interviewing him said, you know, hey, you know, you're the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and I'm sure a lot of people out there, you know, would aspire to one day be chairman of the Federal Reserve. So, you know, what does it take? You know, what kind of person, what kind of background, you know, you know, what should people study? If other people want to follow in your footsteps and they want to one day be the chairman of the Federal Reserve, you know, what what do you recommend? You know, I'm you know, laughing to myself as I'm hearing this because, I mean, obviously you got to be completely clueless about economics. You have to have absolutely no understanding about money or banking. Uh, It helps to be a real good liar, right? He did say that there are a lot of people who used to be lawyers who were working at the Fed and they're generally pretty good liars. So, you know, maybe a legal background uh, would help you at the Fed, Uh, but certainly any legitimate understanding of economics would hurt you. Uh, I think maybe public relations, maybe he should say that people should be communication majors and, and, and you know, in marketing, because that's really what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to BS everybody and con everybody. And in fact, on that subject, also today, uh, Bernie Madoff died in prison. I think he was 82 years old. And Bernie Madoff's background is ideal for uh, chairman of the Fed. I mean, he ran a Ponzi scheme and, you know, that's exactly what the U.S. government is doing 
uh, is running a Ponzi scheme. In fact, Bernie Madoff may in fact be dead, but the greatest purveyor of Ponzi schemes is alive and well and lives on in the U.S. government. I mean, Bernie Madoff was a piker uh, of Ponzi schemes uh, when compared to the U.S. government. And so operating a private Ponzi scheme is a good job prerequisite for uh, being Fed chairman. Uh, Certainly, Bernie Madoff would have made a good Fed chairman. He would have made an even better Secretary of the Treasury, which is something I often joked about. You know, I said, why do we have Bernie Madoff in jail? We should have made him Secretary of the Treasury because he is an expert in Ponzi schemes. And that is what the U.S. Treasury is operating. I mean, the U.S. government really operates two gigantic Ponzi schemes, one in Social Security, right? That's pure Ponzi, right? That's all it is, right? It's, you know, we take money in uh, from the people who are currently working, and then we give that money to the people who retire. And we promise the people who are currently working, when you retire, we'll take money from the new crop of workers. I mean, that is pure Ponzi. That is the definition of Ponzi. It's just that everybody knows it's a Ponzi and the government requires you to participate even though you know it's a Ponzi. Because most people, if they had a choice, would opt out of Social Security. They wouldn't want to take part in it. You know, because most Ponzi operators... You know, they have to keep it quiet. They can't tell you that it's a Ponzi scheme because once you know, well, you're not going to participate. But the government doesn't even have to hide it because they're forcing you to participate whether you want to or not. That's why this particular Ponzi scheme uh, is able to last a lot longer than others. But there's another Ponzi scheme that's a little less obvious than the Social Security Ponzi. And that is the Ponzi scheme regarding financing of the U.S. national debt, right? All the debt. How does the U.S. government pay interest to its current bondholders? Well, it borrows the money from future bondholders. Now, when the bonds that the government sold in the past mature, where does the government get the money to pay off the lenders? Well, it gets it by borrowing more money from new lenders. Well, that again is a Ponzi scheme. Now, more and more, those new lenders are the Federal Reserve. So the government is getting money from the Federal Reserve to pay off the maturing bonds. And where is it going to get the money to pay off the Fed when those bonds mature? Well, they'll get that money from the Fed too. So the entire thing is a Ponzi scheme, except here, Nobody is actually forced to participate, right? The Chinese, the Japanese uh, individuals, nobody is required to buy U.S. treasuries, which is why the U.S. government should have kept the Ponzi-like nature of this finance mechanism quiet. See, that's why I thought Bernie Madoff would have been a much better secretary of the treasury than a lot of the clowns that we've had. Because oftentimes, right, every time we get to the debt ceiling, you'll always hear the Secretary of the Treasury, talking about how important it is to raise the debt ceiling, although we don't even talk about it anymore because we've basically suspended the ceiling. Uh, But back when we still had it and we had to raise it, the whoever was the Secretary of the Treasury would always say, hey, we have to raise the debt ceiling, otherwise we're going to default, right? That's why we have to raise the debt ceiling because, you know, we have to pay our bills. Well, I used to say, well, the reason we're raising the debt ceiling is because we don't pay our bills. If we paid our bills, we wouldn't have all this debt. 
we wouldn't have to raise the ceiling. The only reason we're raising the ceiling is because we don't pay our bills. We borrow the money instead, and we want to keep on doing that. But I always pointed out how foolish it was to remind our creditors that we're just a debt ceiling away from default because that is an admission of a Ponzi scheme. Because the Secretary of the Treasury didn't say, well, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we'll cut government spending so that we can pay our uh, our bondholders. Or if we don't raise the, the, the debt ceiling, we're going to raise taxes so we have more money to pay the debt. No, they said if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we're just going to default. In other words, if we can't bring more people into the Ponzi scheme, we're just going to default on the commitments that we made to the people who are already in the scheme. And so what I was always saying was, look, Bernie Madoff would never make that kind of mistake, right? It is Ponzi 101. When you are running a Ponzi scheme, the last thing you want to do is tell people it's a Ponzi scheme, right? You got to keep that real quiet. You got to at least pretend, right, that you're going to pay your bills. So maybe Bernie Madoff, being an expert in Ponzi's, having kept his going for as long as he did, he may have been better at conning the world uh, so that it wouldn't recognize the Ponzi nature of what was going on. The crazy thing about it is, even though we told the world that it's a Ponzi scheme, the world is that dumb and they continue to loan us money. And that's part of the reason that we haven't already seen a collapse in the U.S. Treasury market. Right? People still don't get it. You know, even with all this money printing and these huge deficits and even with all of these price hikes, right? Bond investors are complacent. They're sitting there. They're staring at potentially double-digit inflation, right? The 1970s on steroids. They're looking right at that and they're just they're just there. They're not selling their bonds. It's like they're like a deer in the headlights, right? They're staring at this headlight from an oncoming car and they're kind of confused or mesmerized or scared. And so they just sit there and then they get hit by a car and die. Well, that's what's going to happen to these bond market investors. They're sitting there like a deer in a the headlight. They're confused. Uh, they don't know what's going on. And the next thing you know, they're going to be flattened by a Mack truck and they're going to be dead because their bonds are going to be killed by inflation. That's the biggest losers for inflation. It's not people in the stock market. It's not people who own real things. It's people who own paper. Oh, and by the way, that also includes people who own nothing, which is Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, because at least the dollar is on a piece of paper. And so when the dollar has no value as money, you can still do something with that paper. I mean, you can ripe your behind with it. I mean, maybe it's not the softest uh, thing to use, but if that's all you got, it's better than nothing. I want to finish up today's podcast, though, by talking about the killing of 20-year-old Dante Wright by a 26-year police veteran in Minnesota. And of course, this is happening, you know, as the Derek Chauvin murder trial is taking place, right, for the, the, the death of George Floyd. In you know, as it's going on in the same state, uh, you have more protests over the death of a 20-year-old black man, Dante White, who was shot by a white police officer, this time a woman. Her name is Kim Potter, said she's 26-year veteran of the police department. And the entire shooting is caught on 
video, not a bystander video like with George Floyd, but the body cameras of the police who were on the scene, including the policewoman who shot and killed Dante Wright. Now, of course, everybody is up in arms. Again, Black Lives Matter, uh, racism. Of course, uh, had Dante Wright not been black, had Dante been white, or had Kim Potter been black, obviously race would not be an issue, even though there's no sign that race had anything to do with this shooting. Of course, whenever you have a white policeman and there is a black person who is killed, it's always racism. And now there's more uh, protests, aka looting, uh, riots, whatever you have. The streets are now once again uh, filled with people uh, who are enraged by what happened. Except if you look at the facts, yes, There was an accident. It's unfortunate that this young man was shot by accident, but it is clear that the police officer who shot him did it by accident. But the mob is not content with the findings, or rather obvious findings of the police department that it was an accidental shooting, and the mob demanded this lady's head, and today the The courts complied and she has now been charged with second degree manslaughter. But you can watch the entire incident uh, on on the Internet. Basically, what happens is the police pull over this guy. Right. And he's actually got a warrant for his arrest for a failure to appear on a weapons charge. So because of that. Right after they pull him over, and it turns out that you know there's a warrant for the guy's arrest. Well, they got to arrest him. That's what police do. They pull you over, and you know you're, you're, there's a warrant for your arrest. They're supposed to arrest you. They're doing their job. Now, what happened is this guy tried to escape. As they were trying to handcuff him, he gave the police the slip, and he tried to jump into his car and speed away. Now the officers obviously don't want him driving off in that car because now they're going to have to chase him, right? And now there's going to be a high-speed chase. They're going to have to get this guy. And if he's going to be driving full speed on the highway and now you have police chasing him, what can happen? I mean, there can be all sorts of accidents. Not only could this guy end up killing himself or his passenger if he crashes, but he can crash into innocent bystanders. I mean, other people driving in cars. I mean, there could be all sorts of accidents. I mean, the last thing police want to have to do is get involved in a high-speed chase. So a guy that they're trying to arrest because there is a warrant for his arrest is trying to escape arrest. Obviously, the police want to stop him from driving away in that car. So this lady basically says, I'm going to tase you. Right? I'm going to shoot you with my taser in order to stop you from driving away in this car, which is absolutely what she should have done. And it's clearly what she meant to do because as she is grabbing for her weapon, she says, taser, taser, taser. She's warning the suspect that he's about to be tased. And she is telling, alerting the other officers who are on the scene that she is about to discharge her taser except she didn't have a taser in her hand. She had her pistol in her hand. And when she shot what she thought was a taser, she found out it was a pistol and she shot him. And she immediately reacted in horror and surprise. Oh my God, I shot him. Now she only pulled the trigger once, right? Probably if she was planning on killing him with a gun, she probably would have pulled the trigger multiple times, which is generally 
what police are trained to do when you shoot. You just don't shoot once. Uh, you shoot more than once. Generally, it's because maybe the guy has a gun and he's trying to shoot you and you want to make sure that he doesn't get a shot off or whatever. But she pulled the trigger one time, which is what she would do with a taser, and then was immediately shocked. Now, once the guy got shot, he drove off a bit before crashing. Uh, nobody got injured in that crash and he died on the scene of the lone gunshot wound. But it is clear that this was an accident, right? Now, does that mean that the police department is not responsible for killing this guy? No, there's civil liability to the family when you accidentally kill somebody. But is there criminal liability on the part of Kim Potter for killing somebody by accident? She thought that she was going to tase him, which she had every right to do. Now, you can argue, how can anybody possibly confuse a taser with a handgun, right? I mean, after all, they don't really look the same. I mean, yeah, they're guns, but usually the tasers are like a bright color and they're plastic. They're not smaller and heavier, you know, like, like, like a gun. But according to the news, from 2001 to 2009, this has happened nine times uh, where a policeman has shot somebody with a gun when they thought it was a taser. And in fact, if you go back over the last 20 years, it's happened 18 times. So almost every year, at least one policeman mistakes their gun for a taser and accidentally shoots somebody. Now, they don't always die. Sometimes they do. Uh, but I think most of the time they probably don't die of a lone gunshot. But in this case, they did. But it happens. Now, obviously, in, it's in the heat of the moment. You know, there's a lot going on. Now, people say, well, this is a, a 26-year-old veteran. Yes, that's true, but we don't know how many times she's discharged her weapon. There are a lot of policemen who have been on the force and never actually used their handgun. I mean, maybe she's mainly uh, a traffic cop. I don't know how often she handles her handgun, how many times she's had to use her taser. Maybe she has to use it in a long time. And this is, you know, the moment is quick. A lot of things are happening. And unfortunately, she made this tragic mistake, tragic for the victim and tragic for her. I mean, she has to live, even if she wasn't uh, brought up on these trumped up charges, she still has to live with the consequences of knowing that she accidentally killed somebody. I mean, that's very difficult to have to live with that. I mean, she made a mistake. It is her fault that this guy got shot. And, you know, she did resign even before she was charged or before they had a chance to fire her. And you can certainly argue that somebody who is foolish enough to mistake their handgun for a taser shouldn't be a policeman, and maybe they would be justified, certainly, in firing her. And I know the police department knows that this is a problem, and they have a lot of rules. They generally require uh, the officers to keep their, their handgun on their dominant side. So if you're right-handed, you keep the gun uh, on your right side, and you would put your taser on your left side. In fact, I think a lot of people are taught to draw their tasers uh, with their left hand if they're a righty so that they know that if they have something in their right hand, it's a gun. And the only thing they have in their left hand is is the taser. Now, apparently this woman was right-handed and, and, and had the uh, gun in her right hand. I'm not sure where she holstered her taser or how this uh, confusion happened, but it's clear 
to anybody who sees this that she didn't kill him on purpose. I mean, why would she do that? Especially in Minnesota, especially right now, especially a black suspect and she's white. She's going to be dumb enough to just murder this guy in cold blood in front of all of the other officers with all those body cams on. She's going to do that? Of course not. This was an accident. But no, the race baiters are not satisfied with an accident. They want to make it all about the police being racist and how this guy shouldn't have been stopped. Meanwhile, everybody wants to ignore the fact that just like with George Floyd, this guy contributed to his own death. Now, did he cause it? No. Is he responsible for it? No, but he definitely contributed. How did this guy contribute to his death? Well, number one, he didn't show up to court when he was supposed to. He had a weapons charge. He failed to show up in court. He was ordered to go to court. He didn't go. And so now there's a warrant for his arrest. If he had obeyed the law when the police stopped him, they wouldn't have arrested him because there wouldn't have been a warrant for his arrest. And there would have been no reason for him to try to evade arrest, which brings me to the second thing that he did wrong. He resisted arrest. If he would have allowed the police to handcuff him and arrest him, he wouldn't have been shot. Why did he get shot? Because he tried to escape. He resisted arrest. He tried to flee. That's another felony right there. He was committing a felony trying to avoid arrest. That is a felony crime. And the police officer had every right to try to prevent him from running, from potentially not only avoiding arrest, but maybe getting into a high-speed chase that could have claimed the lives of who knows how many people potentially on that road. And so she tried to tase him, and then she made the mistake of shooting him. But she would not have had to reach for her taser had this guy obeyed the law and complied with the police. But all these Black Lives Matters guys, they want to completely ignore what this guy did wrong. What kind of message is that that you're sending to young black men? They want to say, hey, this guy was shot because he was young and he's black. No, that's not why he was shot. He was shot because he was trying to escape uh, an arrest. He was resisting arrest. He was in the process of committing a felony, and that's why he was shot. Now, had Kim Potter not made the mistake of grabbing her gun, then he wouldn't have died. He would have been tased. But the reason that she was in a position where she had to grab her taser, that is all on Dante Wright. So up until the point where she pulled out the wrong weapon, everything that went wrong was Dante Wright's fault. None of it was Kim Potter's fault. She made one mistake, right? And that's what cost Dante Wright his life. But all the other mistakes that led to that outcome, they're all on Dante Wright. And everybody wants to excuse what he did wrong. You know, it's the same thing with George Floyd. Everybody wants to focus on the fact that he ended up on the ground uh, with a knee on his back or his neck and he ended up dead. And you can argue over whether or not there was an excessive use of force. I don't think there was. The better argument is after he lost consciousness was the officers on the scene and not just Derek Chauvin, but everybody else. Should they have done something to try to save his life? Should they have tried to revive him? Should they have administered CPR instead of waiting uh, for the paramedics to come do it? Is it possible that had they acted sooner, 
Might they have saved his life? I'm not even sure they could have. He might have had such a bad heart. He might have had so many drugs in his system that he was pretty much a goner at that point regardless. But the point I'm trying to make here is that nobody wants to blame George Floyd for any culpability in his own death. But it's George Floyd that made the decision to take all those drugs, especially considering the heart disease. I'm sure he had some idea that he had this heart disease, yet despite having heart disease, he made the choice of taking all those drugs. And when the police came, he made the choice of shoving even more drugs down his throat so he can swallow them so he wouldn't get busted for possession. And he made the choice to resist arrest. Now, maybe he was too drugged out to realize he was resisting. I don't know. But had he simply cooperated with the police, had George Floyd just sat in that squad car where the police wanted him, maybe he wouldn't have died. Now, I don't know. Maybe he would have died in the squad car of a drug overdose or a heart attack. I don't know. But he wouldn't have died on the ground beneath the knee of Shaman had he stayed in that car. Now, people are saying, well, you know, George Floyd said he was claustrophobic. That's why he couldn't stay in the car. He was in a car. The police got him out of his own car. If he can't be in a car because he's claustrophobic, then how was he in his own car? I mean, the squad car is not much smaller than the car that he was in. And if he was was not claustrophobic sitting in his own car, in fact, I think somebody testified that he was falling asleep at the wheel. I mean, he was so relaxed in his own car that he was falling asleep, yet somehow he can't sit in a squad car. Oh, now all of a sudden he's got claustrophobia. So look, just like with George Floyd, He didn't deserve to die. Unfortunately, he died. Uh, In Dante Wright's case, is resisting arrest, is fleeing the police. Yes, it's a felony, but it shouldn't be punishable by death, right? So he didn't deserve to die, but you can't overlook culpability in his death. You can't overlook the things that he did that ultimately led to the mistake that Kim Potter made, and you can't wash it over. You can't not tell young black men the real lesson from this. It's not that a bunch of white cops are going to kill you because you're black. The lesson is, A, don't commit crimes. If you're supposed to go to court, show up. And if you get stopped by the police and they arrest you, cooperate. Don't try to escape. If they're trying to put handcuffs on you, let them do it right? Don't, don't try to escape and get behind their wheel and flee the scene of this crime and avoid arrest. That's what people should be being told, but they're not being told that because that doesn't serve the political agenda of the race baiters uh, who are, you know, making a political issue out of this tragedy and preventing a more important lesson from being learned. And in fact, I wanted to read too the um, statute from Minnesota on manslaughter in the second degree, Because that is what this police officer, and you have to feel extremely bad for this police officer. I mean, she's a mother of two, uh, although I think the kids are older because I think she's in her late 40s. But I know she feels terrible for having accidentally killed this guy. I mean, anybody would feel terrible for having done that. But now, of course, she's got to go through another ordeal, uh, and so does her family uh, as a result of this. But I'm going to read manslaughter because it's clear that nothing that she did could possibly fall within second-degree manslaughter. And by the way, there is a potential imprisonment of up to 10 years uh, for second-degree manslaughter, right? $20,000 fine, which, you know, kind of is nothing compared to 10 years in jail, right? Uh, But let me read to you 
uh, what constitutes second-degree manslaughter, right? It's a person who causes the death of another by any of the following means is guilty of manslaughter in the second degree, okay? So these are the means. Number one, by the person's culpable negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes chances of causing death or great bodily harm. Now, she did not consciously shoot him. She believed that she was tasing him. So she didn't believe that the taser was going to do great bodily harm. In fact, she believed the taser might prevent great bodily harm either to him or to other people that he might hit with his car if they were involved in a high-speed chase to arrest this guy. So not number one. Number two, by shooting another with a firearm or other dangerous weapon as a result of negligently believing the other to be a deer or an animal. Well, look, she obviously knew that this guy was not a deer or some other animal. Now, maybe the, the people out there who believe she was a racist, maybe they thought oh, they just gunned him down because she's such a racist. She just figures he's an animal. But clearly, there's no evidence. She did not say anything to let you jump to the conclusion that she's a racist or that she would have behaved any differently with this suspect had he been white or any other way. So clearly, number two doesn't count. Here's number three. By setting a spring gun, pitfall, deadfall, snare, or other like dangerous weapon or device. Well, clearly she didn't do any of that, so she didn't do number three. Number four, by negligently or intentionally permitting any animal known by the person to have vicious propensities or to have caused great or substantial bodily harm in the past to run uncontrolled off the owner's premises or negligently failing to keep it properly confined. Okay, so, I mean, this got nothing to do with having a, a vicious dog, right? So she didn't do number four. Number five is by committing or attempting to commit a violation of section 609.378, neglect or endangerment of a child and murder in the first, second, or third degree is not committed thereby. Well, clearly, he's not a child. She didn't murder a child. So this provision has nothing to do. That's it. That is the end um, of the statute. So there is no way that this lady, this police officer, is guilty of manslaughter in the second degree based on the reading of the statute in the state of Minnesota under which she's been charged. So even though there is absolutely no evidence that could possibly lead to a legitimate conviction, why has she been charged? She has been charged simply to satisfy a mob that is demanding that she be charged of a crime even though she did not commit one. Again, can the city be civilly liable for accidentally killing somebody? Yes. I'm not saying the city doesn't bear responsibility. I am pointing out that the individual who died bears some responsibility for his own death. But again, the city is still liable for their contribution to his death. But what is clear is that Kim Potter is not a criminal. She may have accidentally killed somebody, but she didn't do it on purpose. And the crime is the travesty of justice in purposely trying an obviously innocent person to appease a mob. Thank you.